Through the lens of loving local and seeing global, we obsessively search for people whose stories need to be told and how OKC played a supporting role. Hosted by Katherine Bexton and Emmy Cobes, welcome to Action City. Emmy! <laughs> uh, it's lunchtime today. I know. It's a different time for us. It's a different time. I feel like I've had an entire lifetime this morning before I see you. Normally, I see you first thing, but I know a lot has happened today. Well, because it's Gracie's <laughs> It's Gracie's 13th birthday. You have two teenagers. I'm really not prepared for this. I'm, I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm a better teenager mom than I am little baby mom. I, I didn't, I didn't like to sit at home with them when they were babies. When they're teenagers, you can take them places, but then they don't want to be with you. So, I mean, I don't know. I <laughs> you mean, can't win. <laughs> you can't win with this whole situation. But we, we had the Chick-fil-A breakfast was requested on the birthday. Of course. So I broke down. I went to Chick-fil-A, went to Eileen's and got the cookies, then forgot to take the cookies to school. So now the cookies are just in my car. Um, <laughs> perfect. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. I did, however, get, you know, Gracie made a Google PowerPoint or like a Google Slides presentation with all of her birthday wishes with links, the same thing she did for Christmas. And I think she thinks that I must be like a multi-gazillionaire because the list is like, she's only $800 with the swimsuits, mom. And I'm like, yeah, oh, no. no, this is a birthday. And <laughs> she needs <laughs> this a job. Is like one or two items. Maybe you need a job. So she did get a few things off of her list. But this morning she opened up the surprise present. What was that? Well, I had gotten it before Christmas. I don't know if I told this on the podcast, but I'd gotten it before Christmas. I Jennifer went to my little jewelry person in LA. That's right. Okay. The necklace. The necklace. Yes. And Jennifer picked it out. And then I had gotten another necklace for Gracie's friend who was having a bat mitzvah. Mm -hmm. I lost right. the necklaces. Yeah, I remember that. Searched everywhere, couldn't find them. I had to reorder the bat mitzvah necklace, have it shipped overnight, whole thing. And then I found the necklaces again. I had hid them in the back of my sock drawer. I don't know why one would do that. So I had the necklace. I didn't know. It was a total surprise. I gave it to her this morning. I didn't know whether or not she was going to like it. And she loved it. Oh, that's good. So she's wearing it to school. It was, it was really... And then I sort of thought, you know, they've got to have one surprise. It can't be all... Google slide presentation, yes. click the link, make yeah, the purchase. Yeah, yeah I agree. So I think that jewelry is always a good idea. It, I totally agree. I mean, it, well, I say that it's always a good idea if it's to the taste of the person. Of the person, you're, you're yes. Jim, it. don't get any ideas, please. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you need some jewelry ideas, you come ask me, or maybe you ask him. Jeff does pretty well, but it's taken a lot of years to get him You've there. You've probably trained him well. Well, I think my sister, like he always texts my sister, and then and she knows. Yeah. I think there was almost a whoopsie birthday present. <laughs> My sister told me <laughs> she yeah. she put the kibosh on real yeah, quickly. That she was did. good. She did. So. Well, I feel like that was. I mean, I, yeah, I well, feel like there have been so many peaks. I don't even know yeah. what to do. Which do you I guess pits? is good. No, well, the, well, I'll let you say my other peak, which might be your peak. Well, no, God, you have so many peaks too. Wait, what's our what about? our other peak? My peak from last night was getting to oh, be on the cooking class. That was Emma's, really fun. Emma Ryan's virtual cooking class. Emmy and I were her guests, and I just want you guys to know, like, I mean, if I could have like ten more careers, this would be next on my list. I would be I would host like a Food Network show. Now, I don't really. <laughs> 
know how to create recipes. I can cook, but I mean, I can't be like the recipe creator, but maybe I just need to show where I go around all the restaurants, like and have diners, drive-ins yes. and dives or something you like that. I, guy need a, I can be Guy Fieri. You're blonde, so it works. <laughs> maybe not quite as crazy, but I, it, we had the best time. It was, it was really fun. It was great too, because it, I just, I learned so much from her, like the hemp milk. Oh, I mean, did you drink yours this morning? Yes. And Jeff did too, and he loved it. And I I mean, my kids had it and they didn't say, I mean, they- Did you put it in a glass and drink it like you drink milk or did you put no, it in No, I made cereal? it in my smoothie. Oh, in your smoothie. Because okay. I'm on, well, so I've started oh. day, today's day one of my 21 day cleanse. So I usually do a seven day cleanse at the beginning of every month. This month, we're doing the full 21 days. God, so I'm really impressed. I mean, I'm so it's excited to see one. how you feel at the, at the end of 21 days. We're going to track your progress. Yes, I will talk about it because I weighed myself this morning. I know where I'm starting. But also just like, I want to yeah, know about your general, like, do your joints feel better? Do you, are you sleeping better? Mm-hmm. You know, do you have more energy? Those are the kinds of week things I'm one like. one is great. Week two is last time when I did it's this. It's like flushing out all the toxins. Oh, it's <sighs> the worst. God. And then week three is, is you're just over. By that time, it's. You're it's, over. You're like yeah, counting down the seconds. Exactly. So I think, I don't know if that's like my pit or my peak is like, I guess it should be a pit. Because it's like I can't have sugar, alcohol, or whatever. But it's more of a peak because I mean I'm excited to feel good and lose a little weight, right? I, because I think, that's just been a struggle. And 21 days is how long it takes to make a habit. Yes. And so I think that you might not that you don't already have great habits because you do. Well, that's the frustrating part about all of this, and why I so I've started working with Emma again. So I'm doing another six month program with her because. And this really has been like my pit for the last four months. I've just been gaining weight and like I've kept a food journal. I've worked out consistently. I drink water. Like I'm doing all the things and I'm still like gaining about a pound, a pound or two a month. And so since October, it's been, you know, almost six pounds. And it's like I should be losing with all that. Yeah. And so I'm just a little frustrated. So I, I finally, I was like, you know what, Jeff, I need to work with Emma again. I need to figure this out. It's so just going to be a few tweaks, I bet. It's not going to yeah, be like a well, major life overhaul. No. Well, no. and that's what she like, you know, I've kept a food journal for a long time. I've been doing the water thing. I've, I've been yeah, doing... Yeah, where is your giant chunk of water? in the water in the <laughs> car. Um, but so I don't know. It's like, it's been frustrating because I can't figure it out. And it's not like, you know, I don't eat dairy. I eat sugar twice a week. Like... I don't know how much of a better eater exactly. I become. Exactly. But I think at some point you do have to sort of think about that, right? Like right. How much are you going to sort of deprive yourself of everything under that's the sun? That's what I'm saying. And it's like, I don't... So that's what we're trying to figure out. So I think we're going to do the cleanse, you know, cut out basically everything but fruits, vegetables, nuts, like a little bit of a potato this first week and the third week. And then we're just going to reintroduce foods and kind yeah, of see, see how my body reacts. Because... I shouldn't be gaining weight. Like there's no reason. No. So I think it either has to be hormonal or something. But I had all this blood work done. I mean, this is like going. We're, personal, we're going. We go deep over here. At yeah, the I had blood work done and all my stuff looked really good. So that's what I'm not understanding either. And I know your body like, you know, you get into plateaus and your body likes to be around a certain weight. And so you have to work really hard to kind of dip below if you're in sort of a weight loss. But I've intermittent fasted. I've, what have I done? I mean, yeah, I've cut out dairy. I've cut out gluten. I've done no sugar. I've, I mean, I feel like I've done, I don't, I'm not trying to fad diet either. Like that's not. You need something you can live with every day. I think that's really the most important. So we're just trying to figure out because it's like, it could be something simple as like 
maybe I do have a sensitivity to food that's making me like really bloated. Like, I don't know. I'm just trying to figure it out. So. You're going to figure it out. I know. Just, but I'm glad you started the 21 day cleanse after you went on your trip this weekend. Yeah. Can you tell I, me? I've been like waiting. I, when I saw you yesterday, I really wanted to ask. We didn't have time. And I was like, I'm dying to know about the trip. The trip was wonderful. So we went to Arkansas and it's technically Cotter, Arkansas. It's um, How do you spell it? C-O-T-T-E-R. Oh, ca- okay. Cotter, Arkansas. Okay. Um, but we went to this place called the White River Inn. It's a tiny fly fishing lodge. Beautiful. Honestly, the pictures. Oh my God, your stories on Instagram. It was better was, in I kept person. Jim. Which usually I feel like it's the opposite. Like when you look on Airbnb, you're like, this place is not nearly this nice. It was the opposite. Like we got there and I was like, these people need to update their photos. Like it was beautiful. And Moose and Tina, his name is Moose. Her name is now, Tina. Now, is that his name on his birth certificate or is that his yes. nickname? No, his name is Moose. Moose Watson. Love it. And he is a Moose Watson. Like he's, he, he's hilarious. Does he look like a moose? He's a big guy. But <laughs> so, so his name matches him. His, oh, the, yes. And Tina's a sweet, like she cooked the whole weekend and like, you know, she was making biscuits and gravy and all. So the, she didn't know you were starting a cleanse. She, or well, maybe she, she got you ready. I was like trying to, so she made us acorn squash and she kept being like, sweetheart, put butter on it. And I was like, Tina, I don't really, like, I don't do dairy. And she's like, butter. And I was <laughs> Butter's like, no, not dairy. <laughs> like, I don't do that. So it was really, but they were so sweet. And then we fly fished. So we got there Friday. It was like a five and a half hour drive. Jeff did get pulled over. So it took oh, oh, my mom got pulled over on her trip too. Yeah. I Almost mean, got arrested according uh, to my father. Um, they threatened to haul away our vehicle because Jeff had not done a registration in a year. Did not know that either. Oh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that was a fun little <laughs> surprise. <laughs> but so it was like, but I will say, so if you live like in Oklahoma City, if you like to fly fish, I thought this place was like really great. It is a little bit pricier. You could it was a special event for it was a Jeff's special 30th event, birthday. Thirty like, birthday. Yeah. It's Orvis endorsed the fly. I mean, I we caught sixty two fish between what? the two of us. Mm-hmm. Wait, that's like a fish every ten minutes. It was, and I even took like an hour break. Did you sit on the front of the boat with like a beer? That's what I like to do. I like to so, I like to monitor the fish. I don't know how much throw. I mean, Larry, like, our guide, like was not do. into the drinking. Oh, he didn't appreciate that. No, I this mean, wasn't he a drinking wasn't judging, trip. but like Jeff brought a flask and Larry was like, oh, you're drinking over there. You know what I mean? It wasn't like he was like, hey, do you guys want a beer? So it was like a little bit more serious. Larry wanted you to be focused on your fish. He did. Mm-hmm. He really did. But I mean... I understand. He's like, it's, it's, it's this exciting his profession, for him. Yeah, right? Yeah. He's, this is what he does with his life's work. I mean, he was work. very sweet, very nice, but it was like, yeah. Do you little... have to throw the fish back? You yes. can keep them, but we, we didn't. What are trout you, doesn't, trout? Yeah. We caught all rainbow doesn't trout. Doesn't trout taste good? No, it does, not rainbow but trout? not, it doesn't keep. Like it turns you mushy You like bring it home and it could gotcha. Yeah. I would not freeze trout. So. Did they cook you trout for dinner on Saturday They didn't, night? but we didn't bring any home. I mean, they were all okay. fairly small. Like we caught about three that were in like the 18 inch range, but then the rest were like, you know, like eight to 14. Okay. Who's like keeping track of the 62 fish? Like, cause if I tried to do I 62 push ups or whatever, not that I could do six, but I could never keep track well, of that. So, like, do you make a little tick mark on no, something? No, no, no. I was, ca- so I caught 34 and then what's, what's that minus 62? I don't know. 34, 44, 54. 28. 28. <laughs> By the way, just so you guys know, Emmy's mom, mom is in the is studio with us, her partner is here, us. and literally she's laughing at us. She's uh, thinking, where did I go wrong? 
<laughs> but so what happened was I caught 10 fish really quickly, like literally like not my first 10 casts, but like almost I was just like yanking them out. And so Jeff didn't catch any. <laughs> and like, so I, I knew yeah. I was 10 ahead like the whole time. Mm-hmm. And then he started catching up. once once he realized he was really in depth, like I was beating him. Fairly bad. I like that you turned this into a competition. Bad. Like I'm sort of learning that you really are a competitive person. I know it's so bad. It's because I kind of am child, too, which so is the sneaky. problem. My, com- my I know it's not mine's sneaky. like overt. You know I'm competitive. Yeah, yeah. You know I want to beat people, but you're a little more like. Well, Jeff was like, we're gonna take like a shot of tequila every fish we get, or like a sip <laughs> out of the flask. But that, but when we fish in Wyoming, we catch like 16 the whole day on a good day. We didn't know it was gonna be like 30. So then after a while, I was like, I can't do this. No, like that's was, when the break came. I actually didn't really drink all day. It was more chill. I was like, it's your birthday. <laughs> it's your birthday. You Why not? So anyway. So it was, was fun. It was so much fun. It was honestly, I would highly recommend if somebody's a fly fisherman and they're looking for someone somewhere cool to go. It was very COVID. I mean, our guide was vaccinated. Miss and Tina were vaccinated. I mean, like, I don't know. I think Arkansas might be doing a good job of vaccinating people because it seemed other than the random gas stations where we stopped and nobody was wearing a mask, which we kind of like just zipped on out of there. Right. It was it was fairly COVID friendly, I thought. So. Good. Well, I'm so glad. I know. Well, and so here we are. I know. Back to real life. With another doctor. On I the know. Podcast. We're so, oh, I don't know how we got on this doctor role. Oh, also, let me say, I said we'd yes. only had two doctors, but oh, we'd also we, had Tiffany Sill, yeah, who was a veterinarian, three. and that also makes her a doctor. Yes. So this is our third doctor. This is our third doctor, but he... So it's Dr. Chinny Pokola. Um, he is a doctor of pediatric hermatology. Wait. Hematology. Hematology. Let me do that again. <laughs> we have Dr. Chinny Pokola. Dr. Pokola is the doctor of pediatric hematology and oncology at Oklahoma Children's Hospital in the Jimmy Everest Center for Cancer and Blood Diseases in Children. We talked to Dr. Pokla about his journey from Texas to Oklahoma and how he chose to specialize in caring for children with leukemia, lymphoma, and blood diseases. We love talking to him about his patients and how he's actually run 27 marathons, including the Boston Marathon, which that whole conversation opened my eyes. I had no clue about marathons, so that was really cool to hear about. For the Boston Marathon, he raised $19,000 for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And he's actually currently competing for Man of the Year and raising money for them again. So we talk about how you can donate to them and donate to this wonderful cause. So please welcome Dr. Pokla to Action City. Emmy, I know in the show, we talk a lot about all the places we love to go in Oklahoma City, all the shops, all the restaurants, the parks. One of the things that you have to have in order for those places to be able to operate their businesses is it's all commercial real estate. It's it's buildings and standalone locations that are owned by landlords that need to get those place, places rented out. May, mind you, some people may own their own buildings, but some people need to buy and sell those buildings. Some people need to rent them. But how do you figure out what the best location is for you? When I bought Greta Sloan, all these people kept telling me I needed to move and I needed to get a different space, but there was something I really loved about Nicholas Hills Plaza. So what I did when I bought Greta was I sort of listened to those people in that I thought I should look around and see what other spaces are available in the market. And so I called my friend Barry Murphy, whom I've known since college. He married my very best friend from growing up. And 
So I've known him since I was 18 years old. So he was the first person that I called. He's in the commercial real estate business in Oklahoma City. He has been doing this, oh God, at least 15 years. He's an expert. He does office. He does retail. He does industrial. I called Barry. Barry took me to all the spots where I could possibly take Greta. And guess what he helped me figure out? He helped me figure out that Nicholas's Plaza was the best place for it. And I kept it there. So he didn't feel like he needed to put me into a building just to put me into a building. He really helped me answer the hard question of my business of where was the best location. And then from there, my husband is a lawyer and he has his own law practice and he likes to move around a lot as well. And so, of course, he calls Barry to help him with his office needs. And the most recent building that he's in my husband is now in this building called the Barry Law Building, or the I think that's called the Barry Law Building, actually, down on like 19th and Classen. And Barry Murphy helped him find that building as well. He helped him negotiate the contract. And he, my husband loves this building. It's perfect for him. It's historical. He feels like right at home there. And so I just, I can't say enough great things about Barry Murphy. He works for Cushman Wakefield. I think if anybody's looking for somebody to help them with their commercial real estate needs, I think you should definitely reach out to Barry. His phone number, you can reach him on his cell, 405-297-9913, or you can reach him on his website, www.barrymurphy.net. So I highly recommend him. So Barry, thanks so much for sponsoring our podcast. We love you. Excited to see you on Zoom. Thank you so much for joining Emmy and me this morning to so we can hear your story and your journey to Oklahoma City and hear about your life as a doctor and a runner. And we're we're just thrilled to have you here. So thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, uh, as a, somebody who didn't grow up in Oklahoma City. Um, it's been uh, fun hearing y'all stories about life here uh, uh, growing up um, and um, talking to my friends and uh, who grew up here and getting kind of get a little different experience as a, as a transplant. Uh, but um, Oklahoma City means a lot to me. Um, and I'm really uh, excited that you guys are putting out a podcast to kind of tell the world more about our, our hometown. Well, we hope that it helps you. I mean, we were talking a little bit before we got started about your interviewing people for fellowships at OU. And we hope that this is something people can point to and say, wait a minute, if you want to learn a little bit more about Oklahoma City before you get here or to help you decide, listen to Action City. I think. Oh, my gosh, that would be a dream. We would, that would be like a dream come <laughs> true. If you, you know, if, Absolutely. I'll make sure that people uh, know to check that out for next year when we uh, get ready for uh, interviewing candidates. Yeah, they can see, hear about all the exciting things happening in Oklahoma City. So we usually Absolutely. start right at the beginning. Um, so you were born in Michigan, but then made your way quickly to Houston. Yeah, we were about. Um, my dad um, came over in the seventies. He was a doctor, and he uh, wanted to do a medical training uh, in adult medicine uh, in the U.S. And so he and my mom came over in the early seventies. Me and my older brother, my younger brother, were all born in Michigan, uh, kind of in the suburbs of Detroit area. Um, but then um, one of his uh, med school classmates. Um, had moved to Houston and uh, had started a practice there. And so we moved down to uh, Northwest Houston um, uh, when I was about five years old. Uh, definitely a, a more more common climate than my parents were used to growing up in India <laughs> than Michigan was, because Houston is definitely uh, hot and humid. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, so they appreciated that. 
<laughs> for sure. Um, and you know, the, I basically grew up there from like kindergarten through, uh, through high school. My parents still live in the same house that uh, we lived in since uh, 1984 in uh, Northwest Houston. Did you know when you went to college that you wanted to be in the medical profession? Because your majors were history and biology, maybe? Was yeah. That, so yeah. were you trying I, to, were you sort of trying to decide whether or not you were going to go with the liberal arts or with medicine? What was leading you down that path? Yeah. You know, as I mentioned before, my, you know, my dad is an adult, he, he does adult gastroenterology and he's still practicing, even though he's 75, he's still, oh, wow. still going strong, even during the, even during the pandemic and during ice storms, so still doing consults. Um, and so, um, you know, he'd always hoped that one of his sons would, uh, one of his children would be, uh, would become a doctor. Um, and I was the one who was kind of more interested in, uh, in the science of it and being that. So, so I was interested in, in being a doctor, Pretty much from a pretty young age, even you know, from the from the first time I played the the mad mad doctor in the monster mash in the in our choir concert in elementary school, <laughs> white coat the mad doctor. <laughs> and so, so I was definitely very interested um, in um, in 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 medicine. And so, um, so part of you know to to take the MCAT and to apply to medical school, you had to take a lot of biology and chemistry. And so so the biology degree, um, I like biology a bit more than chemistry. And so um so it's made sense to kind of get a degree in that. But I also loved like during high school, I really in junior in junior high, I really fell in love with history. Um, you know, um when when I did like a academic quiz bowl, like that was kind of my my specialty was kind of American history and world history. Um and so I really wanted to continue doing that. Um and so um so I made it work where I was able to kind of uh, study, you know, kind of my 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 kind of one, one for them for the medical school of biology right. and one for me <laughs> uh, doing my history degree along the way, like you almost get a minor in chemistry anyways. And so I took one more, uh, one more chemistry class to kind of get the minor uh, along the way there too. 2000? 2000. So in 2000, I'm trying to think about that's when Jim and I met. Well, no, we met the summer before, but in 2000, Oklahoma city was a completely different city. I mean, uh, Oh, you didn't look the same downtown didn't look the same. What did you think when you, when you got here and why did you, well, first of all, why did you add OU onto your list? And what did you think when you first got here for your interview? Yeah. So, um, definitely part of it, you know, I still, you know, my, my parents certainly liked me to like one of their kids to be kind of, you know, I, my little brother was still at UH and my older brother was, was, um, I think at Berkeley at that point, but it was, so it was hoping that I wouldn't fly too far from the nest. And OU seemed, seemed reasonably close. We had a, uh, family friend, a couple of family friends and relatives that lived in Oklahoma city, uh, and Edmond and in, uh, Enid. Um, and so since there were some family connections there, they thought, you know, yeah, why not try there? I'm like, yeah, that seems, seems like a good place to try. Um, so when I first came, um, you know, um, I didn't get to explore a lot of the city then, you know, um, um, I think, um, the student I kind of crashed with that night, uh, lived over by Lake Hefner. And so I saw a little bit of Lake Hefner. I saw the health science center campus. Um, I briefly, I can't remember where the brick town was, was just, just opening then or just starting around I think it was then. sort of just starting mm -hmm. around then oh my gosh yeah so, so we didn't get to really explore a whole lot because the weather was kind of icy um and most of the day was just spent kind of doing interviews you know it, i did get a good sense of like kind of the even even then the health science center campus was kind of a sprawling kind of it was it was nice because it was uh you know it had a campus campus feel um some of the other medical schools do you interview to are kind of 
main hydrogen facility is kind of scattered throughout the city or it's kind of almost feels like, you know, like, you know, it doesn't feel like a, like a college campus. And I liked that the OU had a kind of a, co- a college campus kind of feel to it um, with the, uh, you know, because the college of nursing, the college of like pharmacy, all the other colleges are also on their own campus in addition to the research buildings. Um, so I thought that was actually was pretty cool. Seemed like a, a good idea and seemed like it was going to be a good fit. So why did you choose pediatric oncology? Like what was yeah. kind of the driving factor there? Because as a parent in thinking about, you know, people who are sick, children to me is like gut wrenching. So I feel like to that would be such a hard choice in my mind. Obviously, I'm not a doctor, so I don't know how that whole process works. But I don't I wonder how you got there. Um, now, I picked up an interest in pediatrics um, kind of even while I was in college. Um, some of it was kind of when I, we took a family trip to India and one of my nieces, not nieces, one of my cousins, uh, um, who, she was a lot younger than me. So I was like, she was my niece, she was my cousin. <laughs> like, Wait a minute. A distant cousin. Yeah. Indian yes. relations were all aunties and all, all yes, of our elders. Everybody's, everybody's like, got a lot of cousins of hard to kind of explain the exact genealogy, but one of my cousins who was uh, like at that point was like less than two years old and like had, was, you know, was, uh, was kind of sickly early on and everything. And kind of was fascinating kind of hearing about, you know, how she was doing and everything. And just, you know, just sort of something kind of clicked then. I was like, I think I want to do pediatrics. Um, and so um, when I, um, when I interviewed for medical school, um, when I started, I was actually interested in doing something that was a newer field called MedPed. So it was a combination of adult medicine and pediatrics, kind of like family medicine, except you don't do deliveries and OBE stuff. Um, but then like when I started doing like my clinical rotations and starting to see patients, um, definitely decided pediatrics alone was what I wanted to do. Um, so you narrowed that dynamic. down first. So you knew pediatrics first. Right. Then... Sure. Then you branched off into oncology. So that wasn't always the oncology wasn't at the top of your list, but pediatrics was. Yes and no. So um, you uh, for training purposes, like after you graduate medical school, you do a residency. And so a residency is where you do anywhere from three to five years in a one of kind of the uh, kind of big, broad areas of medicine. So like pediatrics adult internal medicine, family medicine, OBGYN, psychiatry or surgery. And then afterwards, you can do something called a fellowship was where you do like further specialized training. So like my never dad- ends. Like, never ends, never ends. <laughs> exactly. Like my dad in Michigan was doing a pediatric GI and like, and so I, I uh, wanted to do pediatric hematology oncology, which is blood and cancer disorders in children. So after like my pediatric residency, I did another three years of pediatric hematology oncology training so even while i was a medical student like during the um during my like classes like their first first the first two years we were mainly in the classroom when we started studying like disorders of the blood and looking at like blood slides and the microscope and looking at studying the blood cells um i was kind of fascinated by like kind of the science of that and got uh, interested in that and kind of studying diseases of the blood and was interested in, in those conditions, which included, you know, kind of like anemias and problems with other, with regular blood cells that weren't cancer, but also included uh, blood cancers like leukemias and lymphomas. And so I started thinking about when I was like a second year medical student, maybe I should do pediatric hematology and oncology. Um, then, um, 
during my third year, um, when I was doing my general pediatrics uh, clerkship, I actually did my third and fourth year up in Tulsa um, doing rotations there um, and um, and got to do some more taking care of actual patients with some of these blood disorders. And I thought it was, it was, it was fascinating, kind of the challenges that they have, the complications that you have, um, and kind of the treatments that were developing for them. And you know, also the added dynamic of, you know, um, having to not just deal with a patient, but dealing with the family because yeah, the, the parents. You know, child depends on the parents or their, you know, their grandma their or aunt or whoever it is that's helping take care of them. And so having to talk to a family on a daily basis, as opposed to just one, uh, uh, one adult patient was a different dynamic, but one that I really grew to enjoy and appreciate. And so that kind of solidified that I want to do pediatrics and kind of led me to thinking I didn't get to see a lot of pediatric cancer patients until I was in my fourth year of, uh, of medical school. So during your third year, you do kind of all the big, kind of the big, um, um, the big rotation. So you do uh, pediatrics, surgery, psychiatry, family medicine, internal medicine, OBGYN. <clears throat> during your fourth year, you start to do more electives. And so into kind of areas that you think you're going to be interested in because you kind of have to decide what programs you're going to apply for for residency in the fall of your fourth year. And so um, I did some electives, including one at the uh, Pediatric Oncology Center down in Dallas. Relationships with other medical schools in Tulsa and let's say in Dallas, how how did you get to go do those programs in Tulsa and Dallas when you were in medical school? Yeah. So good question. So back then the OU Medical College of Medicine, you, everybody did their first two years of all the didactics, classroom education. Everybody did the Oklahoma city campus. Um, And there was a, the third and fourth year, there was a smaller satellite campus in Tulsa. um, There was a kind of, uh, they had residency training programs or affiliated with the university of Oklahoma, but rather than being in a, large academic center were at community hospitals. Um, but about 20 to 30 kids a year out of a class of like 160 would do their clinical rotations up in the Tulsa area. And now there's actually a full-fledged, like full four-year medical school up there. Um, but that wasn't the case back then. So most of the kids, that was, my classmates that went to Tulsa were for their clinicals were folks that had grown up in the Tulsa area, want to be kind of back closer to family and, you know, for, for kind of other reasons. Um, um, I kind of, you know, like the flexibility that they offered with the, the with um, kind of scheduling. A lot of my close friends in my class were going there as well. Um, and I thought it'd be another unique kind of experience to, well, when else am I going to try living in another city? Because then you, after that, I was going to be, you know, wherever I was going to be for my residency. I was like, why not see what it's like there? And so, um, and so, um, so I did that and I really liked my experience in the, the Tulsa campus. Um, there was some flexibility where they let me on some of like the, uh, the um, uh, outpatient like clinic based rotations where they let me do like a couple of like kind of go on like some medical missions overseas and then do a couple other unique things. I'm not sure. Maybe I would have been able to do with the Oklahoma city campus. Um, and so, yeah, so that is so it's like, it was, it was completely affiliated with the main, the mothership down in Oklahoma city. <laughs> and now like I said, there was kind of two of them. Um, during your fourth year, when you're doing electives, they, um, 
Yeah, obviously this year with the pandemic, that's kind of put a kibosh on it for everybody. But um, but a lot of programs that will offer visiting the student electives and and or will, and will allow their students to travel elsewhere. A lot of times to let people kind of visit places they may want to go for residency and to kind of see what their programs are. And so um, I had a ton of family in the Dallas area um, and. You know, my, uh, a lot of my close friends from my high school days lived in the Dallas area. And so I was like, oh, Dallas would be a nice place to kind of go to kind of check out. They had, um, you know, because I was interested in pediatric hematology and oncology, they had a pretty large uh, pediatric uh, uh, center there. And so I did a four-week rotation there in their uh, outpatient clinic, kind of seeing patients who are coming there. Um, and um, it was just an amazing experience kind of seeing the oncology side um which i hadn't gotten a lot of experience um in a little bit different setting because this was a bigger big huge academic uh, uh facility kind of right in the heart of a huge city <clears throat> and it was a different experience the one that i like will always kind of treasure um and after spending four weeks there that kind of sealed the deal for me that I was like i really want to come here to do pediatrics training and I think I want to stay here after that. I'd like to stay here afterwards to do my training in pediatric hematology and oncology. And so that's what you did. So you went and that is, was that another six years? Yeah. So um, I did three years of general pediatrics training. And during my, during the spring of my second year, I applied to different uh fellowship programs. And so like I, I interviewed down at uh, Houston at a center, I interviewed up at, um, at Vanderbilt, um, at St. Louis children's and at, uh, and at Dallas. And I really wanted to stay in Dallas. Um, and I was thankful that, uh, I was able to match into the Dallas program. Um, and so, um, after I graduated my third year of Pete's residency, I, uh, didn't have to move anywhere. I could stay in my same apartment, <laughs> knew, knew how to, knew how to drive to work <laughs> and, uh, and started my training in, uh, at, uh, at the their uh, pediatric hematology oncology group. And that's a two-year, fellowship's a two-year program? Or I guess it sort of depends on the fellowship, yeah. maybe. Yeah, most of the pediatric ones are three years. Three and years. so okay. the first year is very heavy with patient care. So you spend a lot of time in the hospital, you're working pretty long hours, mainly focused on taking care of patients. You're doing a lot of on-the-job learning about the, the diseases that you're treating. You also have a lot of lectures where you're you know, uh, presenting and, and doing talks and things like that. Then your second and third year is mainly research where you do um whether it's in the laboratory or research with patients or research with medical records um, to try to, most of the time, in your related field and and where you're trying to contribute something to the growing knowledge that's out there so that we can all become better doctors and better better, develop better treatments for everyone. Um, And so um, um, during during the second and third year, you still would occasionally have to work in the hospital on weekends and see patients in the clinic, but it was probably about 80% of your time was actually uh, was focused on the research part. And so did you do your research in leukemia or in lymphoma or what was your kind of focus? Yeah. So during my first year of fellowship, um, you know, I had a whatever reason it seemed like whenever I was working, there seemed like to be a lot of leukemia patients that would that would pop up. And so I came became very interested in kind of, you know, um, treatments for kids who have leukemias as well as, as lymphomas, because it's also seemed to have a lot of those come up whenever I was working in the hospital. Um, 
our patients who get chemotherapy to treat their to treat cancers also can get a lot of have a lot of problems with life threatening infections. And one thing that we had noticed in Dallas, even when I was a resident, there was a stretch where there was a lot of unusual kind of infections with funguses and molds that most kids most of the time don't typically get during treatment. And we wondered whether it was because of some construction projects that were going on on the campus, um, where they were building a new building on uh, a new tower to the hospital. And so um, I remember those that kind of experience when I was a resident, seeing some of these patients when I was uh, a senior resident on the service. And so when I was, became a fellow, um, uh, decided to kind of see whether I could do like a statistical analysis to see whether you know there was some sort of link between changes in the local environment that maybe put some of our patients at risk for getting fungal infections, even though we were doing a lot of preventative things like giving people masks to wear and telling them to like you know valet park their car and walk straight into the building, whether there was still some environmental risk of kind of getting these infections. And most of these were seen in kids who had leukemia and lymphomas. And so that's kind of how my research kind of tailored together. Did you figure <coughs> did you figure that out? Was it the the construction? So yeah, so these are always complicated because there's so many different factors to kind of consider. Um, and so, but kind of looking through it and thanks to like my, my great research mentor, Dr. Winnick, and some of the other faculty I work with. We were able to kind of do like a very kind of complicated chart review project where we looked at uh, when kids came to the hospital, what time of the year was it? Was it during this time period where they were doing some of this extra building, you know, seasonal patterns? You know, did they have other things going on that might also increase your risk of having infection? And we kind of found that that they're probably the kids that came during that period of time where they were doing this construction to the hospital was an associated increased risk. Now, this is one of those things where, unfortunately, you know, they still needed to come to the hospital to get treated. Otherwise, right. they would be able to treat their, their underlying disease or cancer. Um, but, you know, and, and we certainly had good preventative methods in place. But even then, you know, nobody does everything 100% what they're supposed to do. There are probably some people that didn't wear their masks every single time, you know, because there were problems, you know, you know, walking out in an environment, you, you know, as everybody knows now, one one wrong breath can unfortunately yes, you can get you yes, infected. So, People don't like wearing masks. We know that their parents are yeah. with their kids. You know, uh, inadvertent exposure sometimes will happen, and so what, what, you know, and so we were able to kind of prove that, and that was like kind of my first uh, wow. publication that I had as a as a faculty was publishing my research from when I was a, a trainee. Wow, that's incredible. So, did after that, did the way that construction was done at the hospital change? Hopefully, or. Yeah. So, I mean, this was the thing that was challenging kind of going through is they, the, the, the team there took excellent precautions. Right. Like we did a lot of, they did a lot of things to kind of by the best practices of like environmental health people and everything. Um, <clears throat> part of the reason that we did this project was there hadn't been like a big study about looking at this at a children's cancer center. There are a lot of adult cancer centers where they kind of shown <clears throat> that this could happen but those were like older facilities that didn't have the same good air filtration that we had um, and didn't use the same pretty rigid precautions that we did. Um, and so um, as well, a lot of adult cancer is done, treatment is done like kind of in a different way with less time in the hospital necessarily than what we did with our patients. And so we want to kind of see our patients were kind of a unique group to kind of see whether how that worked. Um, and so, so that was part of the uniqueness of how we did it. Um, 
I think some of the things we kind of took took away from is we still need to continue to be vigilant. Um, a side project that was another another publication I did with another one of like the junior trainees was you know developing better ways to quickly screen and look for these infections before they got more serious. Um, and I think um, a lot of people around the country are using the techniques that we kind of uh, advocated for when we published our article about kind of screening for these infections more more quickly and when to be on high alert. Um, and so, you know, um, obviously, I think it's one of those things where, you know, you need more beds for, for hospitals to kind of be able to provide the patient care. So there's always going to be some risks. And I think we always, you know, advocated and did the right things. Um, but, you know, no system is obviously 100%. But I think we learned a lot about when to be on guard for these infections, the best things to do to kind of prevent um, and to have in place um, and um, in getting better at diagnosing them before they got to a life-threatening stage. Wow. That makes sense. Yeah, it does. It's it's so interesting because I, I have so many thoughts now about like environmental factors affecting our health in general, just because of kind of what you're saying. And I think especially right now, we're all kind of <laughs> figuring this out a lot. Um, but that's so interesting. So you come back to Oklahoma City after being in Dallas. And so is this when you kind of join the OU medical team or how does that happen? Do they do they come back looking for you or did you want to come back to Oklahoma City? How what where where did you look after fellowship after your fellowship and how did you decide to come back here? Yeah, no. So um yeah, so in between like while I was in Dallas, um I, I came back to Oklahoma City a couple of times like for a wedding and then like one year to come back, I came back and ran the uh 2008 marathon and got to see some of the changes that were going on on campus and kind of saw, like uh, some of the that they've been talking about when I was in medical school they're eventually going to do like building the new children's hospital and some of the other things. And so I got to kind of eyeball and see what those things were like just kind of while I'm visiting. Um I originally wanted to stay in um, in Texas and stay at Dallas, but they weren't hiring at that point. Um, but my, um, my division chief, uh, knew the, uh, the division chief up in, um, in Oklahoma city was looking to hire somebody and said, yeah, you should go contact them. So for years, kind of, you know, during a, like when you're applying for residency, residency and fellowship, a lot of where you, you go is kind of decided by a computer. We have this thing called a match where a bunch you apply to a bunch of places and then you rank how you like the places, the places like rank how they like their applicants and you kind of get matched to what the program's like and what you like. It's like the dating so game. That happened like- for residency and that happened for fellowship. So this is the first time having to get a job in the real world for me. I was like, how do I do that? And not have a computer do the job. <laughs> and so um, our website back then, we've made a lot of improvements to the, the uh, Jimmy Everest Center website. But back then, it was really hard to kind of figure out who to contact. And so I did the equivalent of throwing rocks at a window. I ended up calling the clinic and um, I met one of the um, one the one of the when I was uh, applying for residencies the uh, a few years earlier, one of the um, the residency director was one of the pediatric hematology oncology faculty, and so I called asking to talk to her, and she wasn't there, and I got a nurse, and I was like, I know this is weird, and feel free to say no, but I'm I'm a pediatric hemonc fellow in Dallas, and I was hoping to to get a job in Oklahoma city. And I was trying to reach Dr. Kane. Do you mind passing on my email to her and my contact information? <laughs> and so thankfully uh, she took down my information and passed it on to her who passed it on to the division chief. 
Um, and, um, and they were looking for a junior faculty at that point, especially somebody who was interested in leukemia and lymphoma. Um, and, um, while I did a lot of like my research with more kind of on infectious complications, you know, I took care of a lot of leukemia and lymphoma patients in my training. It seemed like that was what my patients, a lot of my patients were, had those diseases. And so I studied a lot about their, their, um, about their illnesses and kind of new treatments and that my mentor was also kind of a, a nationwide expert in, uh, in childhood leukemia. And so I was like, I, this, this would be something I could do. Um, and so they, um, invited me up for an interview in October of 2009. Um, uh, and got, I finally got to see some of the changes, um, that had gone on to the city itself and not just to kind of the health science center, you know, certainly health science center, we had a new brand new children's physicians building. I got to see the new hospital. Um, but around the city, you know, I got to see, they were still building Devon tower. So that wasn't up yet. Uh, they were still renovating like the new kind of more expansive myriad gardens, but, you know, I got to see those projects like in war in, in place. I got to see kind of the new expanded brick town that expanded out beyond like, you know, where it used to just kind of stop by at the ballpark. And now we kind of had a whole, whole new area that was there and they were working on building the canal over to the boathouse district, which didn't exist when I was uh, there before. Um, and so um, it was, it was really, really uh, an amazing experience um, getting to see kind of the city kind of in a period of major growth um, and improvement. Um, and um, yeah, it didn't hurt that the day I also chose to visit the clinic. The OU football team was visiting to do a pep rally with the kids before oh, the uh, <laughs> before going to the, uh, the to their bowl game. And so I think when, when Dr. Meyer saw me take out my iPhone to take pictures of Sam Bradford, were you were you married to your wife then, or had when did you guys get married? Yeah, we got married um, in 2011. So this is like in December of 2009. She got to came, she came up with me for a second look in a uh, when I came up in 2010. We were still just we we're still da- just dating then and trying to figure out because she was a after she uh, she was a, we met during pediatrics residency and she was uh, working in Corpus Christi while I was finishing my fellowship in Dallas and you know um, and then um, uh, when I was offered the position at OU uh, I think literally. It was in February of uh, of 2010. I was like, I, I, I'm going to go. Um, and then we decided to get, to get engaged. And we uh, had a, you know, uh, we got engaged in April of uh, 2010. We got married uh, 10 years ago in February of uh, 2011. Aww. Oh, happy anniversary. Yeah. Oh, thank you. 10 <laughs> years. That is, that's, well, so did you have to sell her in Oklahoma City or did she instantly love it? You know, uh, a little bit of selling, um, you know, the first time we <laughs> went, um, you know, it was a, it was a pretty cold, you know, she'd gotten used to, to Corpus Christi. I was going to say, but really Corpus, Dallas, yeah. we Training together, we had, you know, experienced kind of colder weather and she'd, she'd kind of lived all over the world a little bit uh, with a military family, but, but, you know, um, but, you know, gradually kind of just seeing things around here once, especially after we got married and moved up here, you know, um, especially like the, the food scene, right. Instantly we kind of found a lot of great places that we like to eat. And then we've lived in downtown, um, uh, all of our time that we've been here. Uh, and we've loved getting to watch firsthand the growth and development and progress, um, of the kind of the urban core, the midtown area and downtown. Um, and, you know, getting, we love going down to Scissor Park, the Myriad Gardens, um, you know, uh, the science, the, the 
the art museum. When our nephews and niece come in, uh, or used to come in during summers, we take them to like the uh, the Children's Museum a lot, the Cowboy uh, Hall of Fame. Um, a lot of places to go, um, and certainly we we love the growing food scene here because uh, she was a uh, she she got me interested in, uh, into the finer aspects of eating more than just a uh, you know. Uh, tuna and pasta. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you were open to that. And you, you let her show you all those wonderful food yes, experiences. Absolutely. <laughs> well, and so you've now been here 10, 11 years. And obviously we have the Jimmy Evers Cancer Center is, I mean, I would think known all over the country as being a place where uh, children are taken care of and where they are healed and that research is being done and that it's really, I think, changed the face of how we treat childhood cancers in Oklahoma. So you've gotten to see that progress. What do you, what do you think the biggest accomplishment has been for the Jimmy Evers Cancer Center in the past 10 years? Yeah. You know, there's, there's quite a few things, you know, um, you know, I think definitely we are known in this part of the country as a excellent cancer center. You know, we take care of most of the kids in the state of Oklahoma, as well as some kids, we will get referrals from like parts of like North Texas and like Eastern Arkansas um, and, and even South Kansas a little bit. Um, so I think we have a good kind of regional, very strong regional reputation. Um for a smaller state, um, we actually, we, you know, our, our cancer center offers all the services the patients need right here on campus, um, which is something you don't always see in, in even some bigger centers. I remember uh, uh, interviewing at some programs where they had to send their kids who needed things like bone marrow transplant or specialized radiation treatment to other cities or other sites. And we offer all of that here on site, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, uh, radiation therapy, bone marrow transplant, uh, specialized pediatric surgery, uh, orthopedics, all that here, um, which is great. And seeing the expansion of some of those services um, has been uh, has been awesome. Um, we also, one thing I'm really proud of is my role as the fellowship program director. So <clears throat> we used to not have a training program to train our own fellows. And so people, uh, students who are uh, residents here who are from Oklahoma who wanted to do pediatric hematology oncology training would have to do like me, go to Dallas or Houston or somewhere else. Um, and we've now had a, our own fellowship program that we kind of built from the ground up uh, several years back. And that's one of my jobs is, uh, is, is I'm the program director of that. So I'm involved in recruiting and training the next generation of future pediatric uh, hematology oncology physicians. Um, and I think uh, uh, that's something uh, a big reason why I came here was, you know, was to be part of part of that, the beginning of, uh, of that program. How many programs are there like that around the country? Where can, how many, how many programs can people who want to go into pediatric hematology and oncology go to? Yeah, I'm trying to remember the exact number. It, it's you know, it's a um, uh, less than 200 and more than 100, if I remember correctly. Okay. Somewhere in like the, I think the 125 to 150 range. You know, there, there's been some that have kind of cropped up and some that have kind of closed for a little bit. Um, but you know, we um, the big programs like uh, if you think about Children's Hospital of Philadelphia or Texas Children will take like 
you know, like anywhere from like six to eight uh, trainees per each class year. We we take two, um, so we're because we're a smaller a smaller program from that standpoint. But most places, even the most of the most programs are probably anywhere from like two to four trainees a year, wow. which is a lot smaller than a residency program, which will be like anywhere from like like the OU pediatric residency programs, like fifteen to twenty a year. So it's a smaller group of trainees. Wow, that's incredible. I didn't realize. I mean, that makes sense. It's so specialized that even the biggest program would be only eight people. Wow. So yeah. I don't I yeah. I don't know if you're gonna have an answer to this question, but as a parent, I I love seeing you now. I don't think I ever want to see you with my children though. Um, what are the things that we can do as parents? I know obviously there's no rhyme or reason sometimes as to why children have leukemia or can get any of those things, but what things do you think we can do at home that would be good for our children to maybe make sure or the little things that we can do to maybe never see you? <laughs> yeah, no, good question. And, you know, and, well, you know, certainly like, you know, I think, uh, you know, since we, I take care of kids who have blood disorders as well as cancers, you know, some things are, you know, something, some of the most common things that we see are, are non-cancerous conditions like blood disorders, like anemia and things like that. There's certainly things like having a good diet, making sure uh, kids are, you know, are getting, you know, not like getting when they're toddlers getting stuck on drinking, like, you know, you know, 40 to 50 ounces of milk a day and not eating, you know, not eating other foods that have good appropriate nutrition and things like that. And certainly stop a visit from seeing the hematologist or having to go on iron pills or things like that. For cancers, it's challenging because a lot of, you know, in adult cancers, we know there's a lot of disease prevention that you can do. Lung cancers, you know, you don't smoke, smoke, you know, um, yeah, you know, for uh, uh, colon cancer is trying to have a high fiber diet and, you know, uh, avoiding smoking and, and other toxin exposures and things like that. Um, and that's kind of one of the tragedies of pediatric oncology is we don't know a lot of times what triggered and caused it. I mean, unless you had a, like, you know, in Japan, when we started learning about leukemia a lot from, you know, kids who grew up in like near Hiroshima and Nagasaki, or maybe who had radiation exposures or things like that, that most of the time it's not anything that anybody could have foreseen. And I think that's one of the hardest conversations is because every parent asks, you know, what could I have done? What did I do? Why did I, you know, what did I do wrong? And that's one of the hardest hardest answers to give to a parent is I don't know. And, but I always try to remind them that, you know, it wasn't anything that they did, you know, because like I said, a lot of these just happen on their own. What we're finding out more through like a lot of the research that we're doing in around the country is there's probably more people out there that have some underlying genetic conditions that puts you at increased risk for developing cancers in general we certainly know that like there's like you know there are things that increase the risk for like breast cancer and colon cancer you think but like like women who have the BRCA gene for like breast cancer or like familial adenomatous polyposis for like colon cancer. Um, and there are some, some for, for pediatrics as well. They're kind of a little well-known, but I think the trick has been trying to, we've been trying to figure out that are there some more subtler things that we can, that are out there that maybe we should screen some kids more closely for it's, it's hard to pin the tail to pin that down. Unfortunately, just because either while cancer is certainly, you know, is an important disease in children because it's it's still the leading cause of childhood death 
outside of infancy and infancy is usually the most common cause of death is, um, is a congenital malformations, like being born with, with a GI problem or a heart that's not functioning correctly. After that, the leading cause of disease related death is cancer, but they're still compared to adult cancers. There's only about, you know, in the U S about like 16,000 cases of childhood cancer a year. You think about that compared to adult cancer is where you see, you know, place like MD Anderson may see that many on their own. Um, right. And so, so it's, it's a little bit different thing where we don't want every, every mom and dad out there to like feel like their kid needs a, you know, a CAT scan every, every six months or a blood test every month. But if we can figure out more like, you know, as we get better genetic testing and better understanding of some of these diseases by studying like the blood and tumor samples from kids who've had cancer and whose families have been so gracious to allow us to, to, study those those uh, tumors and, and those leukemia cells that we can better understand and maybe we can develop you know figure out if there are certain groups of, of of people that we should screen a little bit closer whether that prevents them from developing cancer is is hard um because sometimes some of these is just it's sort of you know just never know exactly what's the trigger that causes the that one blood cell to not divide the right way and to stay into it and turn to a cancerous cell Right. And by asking that question, I'm not asserting blame on any parent whose sure. child I, I, has ever, I, 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 yeah, I just was curious if there was anything we can do at home to, I don't know, mm-hmm. even sometimes it's just like you think by doing that one little thing, it just helps your mindset or, you know, your peace yeah. of mind with your children a little bit. Um, yeah. No, just definitely, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, make sure they're eating, drinking well and going to school and doing the things they should do, get vaccinated. You know, we do have, you know, there is a vaccine out there for like to prevent like uh, they can prevent like cervical cancers and things. Uh, the HPV vaccine, that's, that, that's the one true anti-cancer vaccine that we have that's out there that definitely uh, uh, kids should get when they're uh, of age and eligible for it. But, you know, I think uh, other than that, kind of being sure they're, you know, you know, being kids well bathed and going to school and and eating a well-balanced diet is about all you can do and and like i said most parents are, are doing a good job of that what I, I actually had a conversation yesterday with some people i didn't realize that boys can get the hpv vaccine as well mm-hmm. i thought yes. it was just for girls and i had no idea and i had this conversation she said her nine-year-old son had gotten it and she said she's 43 maybe she had gotten it as well and i didn't realize that grown-ups could get it. Yep, so absolutely. that was, um, my, my children have had it and, and I know that they, um, we go to OU, our pediatrician is at OU and, and she's done a lot of research on why parents decide not to give their kid that vaccine. And so she's working to make sure that, you know, they vaccinate every kid that comes through OU pediatrics at least. Well, tell me, I know that, um, you have run 27 marathons which uh, my little three marathons that I've run seem really sad now in comparison to that. I haven't run one, so I feel way <laughs> my, worse. My wife has run three, so, don't, so, so take th- that back. Okay, I take that back. I take that back. <laughs> but tell me, how did you get into running? And yeah. I know now that I think we had sort of communicated earlier, I my very first marathon was done with team and training, which is a fundraising effort by the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society to raise money for research. And I know that you've run marathons for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. How, how did you start running? And what are you doing now to raise money for the for the organization, which I know you're you're launching into something this month? Yeah. Um, so 
I, um, when I went to college, I wasn't in great shape. I, I wasn't, like I said, I was, I was a, I was a band guy and academic and, and an <laughs> academic during my high school years, other than playing pickup basketball with my friends, didn't do a lot of like steady exercise. When I went to college, I started to exercise more, including kind of running a, a lap around the Trinity campus, which was like about two miles. By the time I got to med school, I got to where I could run like five or six miles and, and feel okay. Um, my first year of medical school, they put on the inaugural Oklahoma City Memorial Marathon. Um, uh, so that's that spring of uh, of two thousand and one, and one of my friends in my class, like we did like a jog around Lake Hefner that November, and he was like, you know, if you can do ten miles now, the marathon's not till April. You should think about running it. And I was like, oh, maybe you know, something I never really thought about doing, but I was like, you know, it'd be something on the bucket list to say. Well, you know, I, at least I, I, I could do that, you know. Um, and so, um, so I wound up doing it. Uh, it was uh, still my slowest marathon and my most painful experience. <laughs> I had a lot of trouble during training like me, and I didn't get to do the best training ever. Uh, but I crossed the finish line and, uh, you know, it was just a, it was an amazing feeling, even though it was a much smaller event then, like there was only, I think, 2,000 or 2,000, 3,000 runners where now it's like between all the races is like 25,000. It was still just an amazing feeling. You know, uh, a lot of my friends were uh, running in the races and like whether it's the relay or in the full or the half uh, uh, and, uh, and we're along the course of support. And it was just kind of a, just, you know, the runner's high and everything else kind of helped blot out the pain. Um, you know, but I thought, nah, I'm done with that. I'm just going to do five Ks here and there. And that's about it. But, you know, thinking about it, I was like, yeah, I did a lot of things wrong during my training. I know I can do better the next time. And so sure enough, the next year, my second year of medical school, I wound up running it again. And then during my, you know, I thought for sure I wasn't gonna be able to do it in my clinical years, but wound up doing it every year in medical school. And just like, you know, this is something I don't mind doing once a year, spending four months kind of a training time to kind of get devoted to it. And then uh, been lucky where I kind of kept up with it and just have found, you know, uh, found a love for it where like, um, you know, uh, running is kind of my big stress relief where I sort out my thoughts, you know, um, you know, are in is where I can work out some of my problems. And sometimes where I sometimes can have had some revelations about how improved patient care or come up with research ideas that sometimes come on a, a long, quiet run by myself in the mornings. It's very um, meditative. So now I've, uh, you know, it really say? is. It's very meditative. It is a good place to think. It is. Yeah. And I, and I, and I just, and just love doing it. I've been fortunate. I've been pretty healthy overall where I can kind of keep running and have even kind of had a little bit of a, a old man renaissance these last couple of years where I've actually kind of gotten faster and faster to the last couple of years. Um, you know, a lot of the races that I did were, you know, I've done the Memorial a lot, which certainly has kind of a special meaning because I ran the first one and because of, you know, why they run it for the, in memory of the, uh, of the people who died in the Murrah building bombing. Um, some of the other races that I've done have often been associated with other hospitals, like uh, Dallas is associated with uh, the Scottish Rite uh, Hospital that does uh, a lot of orthopedics work. Um, and some other ones have been associated with hospitals uh, and other charities. Um in, you know, for every runner, you know, is always a dream to kind of run the Boston Marathon. And that's when I kind of first kind of crossed paths seriously with like the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society was um, I was interested in doing the Boston Marathon. I was never going to have like a, a Boston qualifying time. I think for my what age, is it I for you, like 310 or something? 
Something like that. Something like last really year, in, in 2020 in Houston, I ran a sub 330 and that's my fastest one, but I'm, I'm not going to get any faster. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you have to qualify for the Boston yeah, Marathon? And it's really fast. Whoa, I didn't even know that. Yeah, you have to run, uh, depending, it's, it's kind of based on your age and by gender. And so uh, you're, they're, they have like these kind of qualifying times. And even then, even if you get a qualifying time, you also have to register it and uh, and make sure somebody else hasn't kind of taken the slot. It's a very, very tense process. Wow, uh, I didn't I've never participated in it because I've never gotten close to a qualifying time. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's, I did not realize that because I know people are very proud when they say they've ran the Boston Marathon. And I guess I just thought it was like any other marathon <laughs> where you're just uh, happy to have run it. Wow. It's, it's the oldest one in the it's the oldest one in uh, in the world as uh, and um, and it has a lot of prestige to it as well. It's a unique course because you it's a kind of point to point course where you the runners go out to like west of Boston and then kind of run through all the small towns and you kind of finish it finish inside the heart of Boston. Um, it's kind of a big huge event. Like a, it's on a Monday it's on a Monday in April. Patriots Day. There's always a Red Sox game in the afternoon and you go by Fenway Park at about mile uh, at mile twenty five and so. It was this huge big event that the, the the city really embraces, and it's always been a dream of mine to get there. But I knew I was never going to get a, a a qualifying time, even though I'd gotten like had chipped down my time to about three forty six. I was still left a half an hour more to chip <laughs> off that I knew I was never going to. And so, um, so I reached out to the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. I'd, I'd done some fundraising for them and donations here and there, um, and certainly they'd been helped with like uh, some of our patients had uh, applied for like uh, aid from through them. But I reached out to them through. Um, uh, their team and training initiative. And, um, in, uh, late 2018, they asked me if I was interested in trying to represent them, uh, in 2019 in Boston. Um, I was just coming off of a, my first race where I couldn't finish the marathon because I had a hip injury and I had to bow out, uh, partway through and I was kind of feeling like I was on the wrong side of 40 and that was maybe these, my marathoning days were done. But, um, but uh, when I got the call about that and, kind of talking about this, well, I would have been the first person to um, represent Oklahoma in the Boston for team and training. I was like, I, I got to do, do it. This. Yeah. Um, and so to get the slot, I had to, as a, as a charity slot, you have to re, uh, raise a certain amount of money. And so I um, had to raise about, uh, I wanted raising $19,000, wow. um, but I had, I needed to raise, raise at least 15,000. And so, um, and I was one of the top 10 fundraisers for that year for Boston, thanks to, you know, the support of all my, my friends and my family and my wife in particular, um, and a lot of my, uh, patients and their families as well. Um, when I got to, when I ran, they, you know, gave me like a, a specialized bib to wear on my back that you can do in memory of somebody. And, you know, um, they let me put, three of my patients, uh, uh, a young, uh, young boy named Keaton, a young boy named Calum, and a young man named uh, Jordan, uh, their pictures on my back uh, and kind of running in memory of uh, as a big reminder of why I was running. Wow. Um, and so, yeah, so that was my kind of first foray into big time charity fundraising with the Leukemia Lymphoma Society. Um, and it was uh, just an unforgettable experience getting to run. Um, and, kind of hearing from my friends back home because it was on a weekday on a work day where people, my, my colleagues were all at work and doing things. Um, it was really touching to hear that, you know, people were like, 
you know, tracking me on the app, that families were asking about how I was doing, were cheering me on to you know, kind of the first time I felt like I was a, like, you know, somebody watching me on TV playing sports. <laughs> the only time probably I'll have that experience. It was your and, Super Bowl. Um, right. And really part of something bigger than yourself, right? I mean. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, um, it meant a lot to me to hear how much my running meant to my patients and my family and their families who, you know, I ran a mar- you know, I run two or three marathons a year. Every day of their treatment is like a marathon of things that I'll, you know, have thankfully never had to experience like that, that, you know, unfortunately so many kids have to experience. Um, team and training and the Leukemia Lymphoma Society, why it means so much is, you know, a lot of pediatric oncology, about 40% of pediatric cancers are blood cancers, leukemias and lymphomas. And so, this seemed like a perfect charity when I had a chance to do the, the ideal charity to represent um, in doing that and to raise a lot of money for them. Um, they've also done a lot, you know, over the years, they've raised like over a billion dollars for, for research and have really expanded into doing more pediatric cancer research um, for, uh, for childhood diseases and particularly have had poorer cure rates we've improved like the cure rate for childhood cancer is up to 80%. Um, and our most common leukemia of childhood, uh, ALL, our cure rates over 90%. Um, but that still doesn't mean it's unfortunate that 10% of kids, you know, don't survive their disease. And for other uh, leukemias, one called acute myeloid leukemia or AML, the cure rates are still kind of stuck in the 60 to 70, like, you know, 60 to 65%. So there's a lot of room to improve and that's where the Leukemia Lymphoma Society is helping a lot of research in those areas. Um, and so it was a real honor to represent them to try to do good for my patients and as well as uh, other kids who are uh, fighting these diseases, as well as adults these diseases every day. And are you launching in a new fundraising campaign coming up? Yeah. So um, what does that look I was like? uh, approached by um, the Leukemia Lymphoma Society, but participating in their uh, man, and wo- man and Woman of the Year annual campaign. And so this is a 10-week fundraiser that will start on March 4th and go through May 14th, um, where um, there's multiple campaigns around the country. Uh, each state uh, has one where they ask about, you know, anywhere from like about a couple of dozen people who live in the state or live in that region uh, to kind of compete to see who can raise the most money for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And then they win the title of man or woman of the year. Um, and so I was honored to be uh, selected, uh, to be approached to be a candidate. Um, and it was really touching to hear that part of the reason I was nominated was a couple of my patients whose parents uh, do a lot of advocacy with uh, with Leukemia and Lymphoma Society nominated me for that. And so it was um, uh, a true honor to, to represent them and my patients. Um, I think that's something that I think, you know, one of the, you know, the best things about my job, you know, my job is, you know, it's hard you know, to do what we do. And I work with excellent staff and my colleagues, my nurses, child life specialists, music therapists, anybody else I've forgotten out there, pharmacists. <laughs> um, but the families and the kids that we get to interact with every day, um, you know, we have to tell them bad news, do give them medicines that have a lot of side effects. And it's just, we get blown away by the kindness that we receive in return. Like um, a couple of my patients, like uh, yesterday, like um, one of my uh, uh, 
former patients, a young man named Keaton who died of uh, acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Um, his family has set up a, a charity called the Keaton's Kindness Foundation or the K-Club that does a lot of uh, fundraising for our hospital and for pediatric cancer research. And they uh, helped renovate like our playroom on the floor yesterday. And so, you know, and we've have other families who've also done these kind of things where they, after their child has finished therapy, have been fierce advocates to improve care for other children, um, whether it's through research or through uh, kind of supporting kids while they're in the hospital. Um, and we kind of to see that kindness from families who should be more aggravated at me for, you know, the side effects that their kids are going through. And we're unfortunate at times where I can't cure their child is just, is just indescribable and makes you want to do more. And so that's why I really uh, hope to, to do a good job in this fundraiser and to try to raise as money as I, as much money as possible um, to kind of help treat these children. Um, a lot of the treatments that the Leukemia Lymphoma Society are trying to do and try to help develop are kind of new ways to treat cancer. You know, for a long time, we give kind of regular chemotherapy, which is medicines that kind of kill off cells, but are not quite as targeted towards just cancer cells. And a lot of the new research that we're trying to do is what we call immune therapy, where we're trying to do more targeted treatment or even activating the body's own immune system to try to fight off cancer cells. Um, and leukemias and lymphomas in particular is where a lot of these, you know, you may hear on the news things called something called CAR T cells, where we kind of engineer the body's T lymphocytes, which are immune cells to target and kill cancer cells in the body and to kind of cure cure cancer through that approach. Um, and that's where a lot of the new research that the Leukemia Lymphoma Society is trying to pump money into uh, is into these new kind of novel immunotherapeutic medicines rather than kind of old-fashioned chemotherapy that has a lot of the other side effects where other organs are affected in addition to killing off the cancer. How can people donate? Yeah, so... Um, so um, yeah, my website and my Facebook site will open up um, in a uh, in a few uh, in a, next week on March fourth, um, and I'll uh, and I can uh, share the link with y'all um, uh, if you want to share it on your Instagram and out there. And certainly, if you go to the Leukemia Lymphoma Society uh, LLS.org, um, you can click the links for the Man of the Year Man and Woman of the Year campaign. Um, and there's uh, multiple teams that are out there, multiple candidates. I, I hope you consider donating to mine, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I won't begret y'all if you want to donate to any of the other uh, uh, amazing individuals who are who are also participating. Uh, some of these are other physicians like me, other business uh, business people in the community, um, and others were you know childhood cancer and adult cancer survivors themselves. Um, a quite inspiring group of people that uh, that I'm. I'm the honor of being with um and we're all you know it's a friendly competition <laughs> all the money a, goes to the same a, place yeah, yeah but it's a, it's a bigger goal that we're all working together um from that aspect um and that we're all very lucky to uh privileged to be a part of do you have a goal for yourself have you thought about how much money you think you can raise oh or are you keeping um, that close you know, to the uh, best <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. And, and some some things I'm not allowed to kind of put out there. You know, I'd love to be able to, you know, I raised a $20,000, almost $20,000 for Boston. Um, I'd love to to be able to double or triple that uh, to get to 50 or 60,000, I think would be would be fantastic if I can get there. Um, yeah, but every little bit helps. Um, and certainly, uh, you know, um, I really appreciate you guys helping uh, give me a forum to talk about that and to, to talk about our patients. Um, and what they go through so that we can figure out ways so they don't have to experience some of these uh, harsh chemotherapies and improved cure rates uh, so that our patients that are long-term survivors have a better quality of life instead of having a lot of late side effects long-term that kind of haunt them throughout the rest of their life from their, their uh, curative chemotherapy. Well, I know that, you know, this, this childhood cancer is sort of close to my heart and I didn't really know, however many, 25 years ago when I did that marathon and raised money for team and training, I really did it because I wanted to run a marathon and they had a great training program. And then years later, my sister participated in the woman and man of the year uh, process in Washington, DC. And she was actually ended up being the woman of the year in Washington, DC. Much, (laughs) I mean, maybe 15 or 10 or 15 years ago, her mother-in-law had passed away from leukemia. And now, um, you know, I've been sort of reconnected with it through my best friend whose son has leukemia and that's how we got connected. And so I, I didn't know 20, 15 or 20 years ago that I would still be connected to this cause. And it really does hit close to home, especially now. And so I know that, um, you know, the the work that you're doing here in Oklahoma, we're so lucky to have you and to have your team and have the Jimmy Efres Cancer Center. And I hope that our listeners will consider donating to you as man of the year and to the cause and to know that we really do have a world-class facility right here in our backyard. Yeah, it, it's great. Um, you know, uh, uh, that now that we are able to offer a lot of these treatments, like you said, right here, um, including some of these new cutting edge treatments where, you know, 20 years ago, we'd have to send kids to, you know, to Dallas or to Houston. Uh, but now with our, you know, the, the facilities we have here and the, the, the teams that we have here, almost all of our patients can get all of their treatment right here and not having to leave uh, the, the state of Oklahoma. Um, that's and, a, that's and a huge deal. It is. Yeah. I would, I can imagine having to travel with your child who's ill and having to, you know, go to a hotel or an apartment. I mean, I know there are some people who don't live in Oklahoma city Metro that probably do still have to do that, but at least it's a little bit closer than yeah, Houston or Dallas. So, well, yeah. I think we're ready for our final question. Oh, to we ask our, I feel like we've now established oh, two, two final, final questions. questions. <laughs> okay, you asked the first one. So our first final question is kind of happened. about <laughs> Oklahoma City 10 years ago. So when you arrived back and the thunder kind of came and all of this vibrancy was happening. And then sort of what do you see for Oklahoma City in the next 10 years? What do you see for your, you know, profession in the next 10 years? Um, and even for yourself? Yeah, no, great question. You know, it seems like the city has a, you know, um, is heading in a continues to head in a good direction. You know, we're excited to kind of see the kind of continued expansion of, uh, uh, of, uh, downtown, the parks, some of the other initiatives and some of the recent maps projects about from senior living and to kind of help with the homeless situation, uh, in particular, I think are going to be things that are going to be definite, definite positives. Um, 
seeing some diversification of kind of, of the city as a whole, I think is a great, you know, I kind of describe like to my friends is the kind of Oklahoma City is like kind of like Houston and Dallas or just kind of on a smaller scale. You know, we have one pro franchise team. We have, you know, one Whole Foods, one Trader Joe's, <laughs> one Anthropology, one Apple store. Like, <laughs> maybe three or four of everything. Um, but, uh, but it has that kind of small town feel, a small city feel if you can get around really easily without having your uh, blood pressure up being stuck on, uh, on traffic. I-35 here is nothing like I-35 in, uh, in Austin, San Antonio, or Dallas. Doesn't it make um, you laugh when people talk about thunder traffic being terrible and you're like, <laughs> This is fine. That's what I always now, I will have to say the one time that we actually parked in the parking garage for a game, even though we lived not that far away and should have walked, it was a little bit painful. Oh, kind of getting, oh you that's right. I forget faster, you live downtown. Right. So, yeah, you just yeah, really can walk. That was our one mistake. Every other time we just walked to the arena. But, uh, but yeah, I, I think it was all the times trying to leave the uh, the Summit or the, the Astrodome or from uh, Reliant or any of the stadiums in, in Houston or leave, trying to leave uh, <laughs> from any of those is uh it is nothing compared to that yeah. <laughs> but um you know i like to see you know it's been great seeing kind of the diversification of the economy of the city uh as well as the people of the city where um you know i think uh you know, I think it's uh, set itself up well for continued growth and development and expansion in the future and so what do you think about the we talked about sort of new techniques in treating cancer and the research being done there. And do you think those techniques, are they coming to the Jimmy Everest Cancer Center? What do you see for it in the next 10 years? Yeah, some of them have already started to come here. There are some uh, immune, new, newer immune therapies like CAR T-cell therapy that used to be, we couldn't offer that, unfortunately, kids here. And we had to send them to uh, to Texas or to Kansas City or some other bigger centers. Um, but now we have those available here. You know, we're part of the, a network of hospitals, the Children's Oncology Group, that does kind of group research together. Uh, and we're able to offer the vast majority of those treatment protocols and clinical trials right here. And um, we're expanding our access for our patients to get um, newer therapies as well. Um, you know, we're, we're smart, but we're humble people too. We're also not afraid to ask others, experts for help, whether it's for specialty surgery or for uh, other new treatments. You know, we want to make sure we're doing what's the best for our patients, regardless of it's what something we have to offer or other another facility has to offer. But I think we're getting to that point where, you know, really for most of our patients, we can offer that here and they don't really have to go anywhere else. Um, and a large part of that is thanks to, you know, folks who've been, you know, been donating, but also kind of the growth of the city and the, you know, you know, and of the, uh, the economy here has made a lot of that possible. Um, and, uh, and certainly it's my hopes and feels like we're heading in a direction where we'll be able to continue to grow and expand those services uh, to uh, all the children of Oklahoma who have to uh, fight these diseases every day. I love that. Are you ready oh, for a final question? Re we're ready for a final question. <laughs> <laughs> well, we never got into your love of food, which is my favorite topic. We can do that at a later date, but... Well, you can kind of... We can kind be of, a part of this. Th th yes, we can kind of get to that in this question. <laughs> so your best friend from high school springs a weekend visit on you and you pick them up at the airport and you have the whole day. There's no pandemic there, there's, there's no traffic. You can do whatever you want. What do you take them to do? Gotcha. Good question. So, 
That'll, we'll assume that if they if they, if they have kids, it changes a little bit because then I'll probably throw in the science museum into the in, into the list of places to go. <laughs> you can and pick whatever you want. Yeah, any scenario kids, you want. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I definitely we would probably take them to brunch achievers, um, uh, depending on their field, either achievers or uh, uh, Southwest Frida over in the Paseo. Those yes. are two great lunch and brunch spots to go. Um, you know, me and my wife, since we lived in downtown, are kind of creatures of downtown. We'd probably take them then to the the, uh, we like going to museums, and so we probably take them to the uh, Oklahoma City uh, Art Museum. You know, we've loved going there, seeing the the, the Dale Chihuly exhibits. They always have a great collection of new art uh, exhibits coming through. Whether it's things like Fabergé eggs or French Impressionists and the Monets and the Manets. Uh, and other uh, kind of just amazing pieces of art to see in addition to the permanent collection. They probably you know, either walk or take the streetcar, just kind of mosey our way through downtown to the Myriad Gardens, uh, look at the Crystal Bridge Conservatory, uh, shed our jackets to go in there since it's yes. pretty hot. And humid. <laughs> a little steamy. We talked about that, I yeah. think, last time. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, now and then we walk walk a little ways over to Scissor Tail Park and we kind of complete the nice, comfy, one easy one mile kind of lap around the park and, you know, look at the uh, the scenery, take a maybe walk across the Skydance Bridge. Um, and then afterwards, uh, either hop in the, the, the streetcar or walk over to Bricktown. Um, and, you know, if we're in the mood to catch a movie, maybe we'll catch a movie at Harkins. If not, maybe go for an early dinner at uh, the Mantle Bistro. Um, I'm always partial to Achievers in the Mantle since those were the places when I uh, came to interview the first time is where the division took me to to, to wine and dine me. And then when uh, Julia came with me for a second look, that's also where we went. And uh, we've, we've loved those places since then. Um, the Mantle also has my second favorite dessert in the city, their creme brulee. Uh, oh. uh, my favorite dessert, it was, uh, unfortunately, I don't know whether the Drake is going to be reopening anytime soon. Uh, I know. I uh, still, uh, this makes me pine for every time. <laughs> I, I love think the about Drake. It. I know. Fantastic dessert. Um, but yeah, and then uh, if the, if we got in rooms at the Omni, I probably would take them to the the new Omni to to spend the night before catching their plane flight back the next morning. <laughs> that sounds like a great day. Yeah, that sounds perfect. I would love that day. Those are those are some of all of our favorite places as well. Well, yeah. tell tell our listeners how if you know they need to contact you, how that can happen, or if they want to get more information about Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, um, where they can go. Yeah, yeah. So looking at Lymphoma Society, you know, it's pretty easy to find if you Google it, but uh, LLS.org. Um, and then you can look for the Man and Woman of the Year campaign uh, under their fundraising. And like I said, I'll share with you guys the email link to my fundraiser site. It won't go live until next week. Perfect. Um, and then um, uh, um, uh, there'll be opportunities to kind of donate through that. Um, I'm working on still trying to figure out uh, the art of Instagram, but uh, setting up Instagram. <laughs> Emmy can help you. I can help. Emmy's really good. She'll I, help may, I, may, I know you guys do Instagram a little, uh, quite a bit, so I may need to, to steal some tips from y'all, but, uh, but I plan on also having uh, my fundraiser linked onto there too. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We so appreciate you. We, we loved it. Yes. Thank you. Amazing. Thank you for coming to Oklahoma City and thank you for helping all the kids in our state that that need your services and putting your heart and soul into it. We really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you for giving me the, the time to kind of talk about what I do um, and to kind of give a little insight into the, the amazing things we're doing for some really, you know, amazing kids who are facing the toughest things that you can imagine. Yeah. Um, 
for uh, helping uh, helping improve cure rates for kids by uh, giving me a chance to talk about uh, fundraising opportunities. Awesome. Perfect. Well, thank you. Thank you, Jenny. We appreciate it. No problem. Bye. 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 Thank you so much for joining us today. We truly appreciate your listening to these stories. You can find us on Instagram at ActionCityOKC or for business inquiries, email us at hello at ActionCityOKC.com. Action City is produced by Black and Studios. You can find the studio on Instagram and Facebook at Black and Studios. Creative services provided by Ranger Creative. Music written and performed by Kansas City Bankroll. <laughs> <laughs>